but we're, we're still on track. We've survived two weeks so far, and, you know, and I think many people have left the church. So we're, we're doing all right, uh, and we're, we're stick with it. It's content-rich. There's a load of scriptures that we go through, uh, but hopefully it's, it's not simply just a wall of information, but your soul will be enriched by it. Those of you that know and love Jesus, you'll be gripped freshly with um, just the magnitude of all that he is and all that he's done. Uh, and those of you that are maybe here and maybe you're not sure where you're at or you're clear you don't believe or maybe you're just searching and, and asking questions, every week you come, you will be able to get a fresh glimpse of the gospel, a fresh, a fresh view of all that Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Um, so engage with us, please. Engage your mind, your heart, uh, and we'll get somewhere great. I'm going to pray and ask for God to help. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Um, and Holy Spirit, I do so desperately need you over these next few minutes and so do those who are listening we just want to welcome you through this time that you would work pray for people that just need the eyes of their hearts opened in a fresh way maybe for the first time Lord to see you it's not it's it's so much more than information We we need revelation and only you can do that so we welcome you I pray people would be freshly gripped, freshly gripped with all that you are and all that you want to do. People would be built up and encouraged. People would be warned and kept from dangerous parts. I pray, God, whatever we need, whatever we need, let it it be heard in a deep way. Amen. So week one was the tale of two cities. Week two was Sabbath rest. Week three this week is image restored. The image of God restored. Um, So we're going to start, as always, in the book of Genesis at creation. We're going to start in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 or 28. should come up on the screen. Here we go. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Image and likeness. Those words are used interchangeably throughout the rest of the Old Testament, so they're not necessarily saying distinctive things. But for your information, the root of the word image means to carve or to cut if you are creating some kind of image. And the word likeness simply means to be like. So I guess we could say that God has carved us out into his likeness. But it obviously raises the big question, what does it mean to be in the image of God? People have speculated, theologians have written things, and I've spent all week nearly pulling my hair out and buying a wig as a result, because it's like, man... What does it actually mean to be in the image of God? Is it, as some theologians said for centuries, it's it's, it's to do with our reason. The fact we have reason, that's why we made the image of God. Theologians recently are saying, no, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that's what it means. It's really just uh, the legacy of Greek thought. Socrates and those guys with all their uh, exalting of reason, that's really carried through into into Christian thinking. And so I've just had to do the good old-fashioned, get into the text, sit there, God, what is it, what is it, what is it? I'm going to suggest, propose three things that it means to be made in the image of God here. Um, 
first thing, and the first will be upwards, something to do with our relationship with Him. The second thing will be horizontal, to do with our relationship with one another. And the third thing, to do with our, creation, to do with our relationship with creation. So they're the three main areas I'm going to pull out as I was thinking about what does it mean to, what does it mean to be in the image of God? What does that mean for our relationship with God? And initially I thought, well, it's, it's, it's moral responsibility. This is, it's not much, it doesn't sound much fun, does it? But first, it's moral responsibility. When we get to chapter 2, there's a prohibition, don't eat from that fruit, they do, they're held responsible. And then I thought, is, I mean, really, is that it? God, I suppose you could say, is morally responsible. So if we are too, it's kind of like him. But I felt like I was clutching at straws. And I thought, no, 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 it's just, it's relationship. The fact that we, only us, can have a relationship with God, unlike the rest of creation. And I thought, no, the sparrows do. It's a different kind of relationship. But Jesus said the Father provides for us. There's a relationship of provision there. There's a sense in which, you know, they, 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 I don't know how, what their consciousness is like, but there's a sense in which, according to Jesus, there's a reliance on him. And, you know, they just go around their business and God provides for them. There's, there seems to be some, you know, there's, there's different kinds of relationship. It's not the same, but that word didn't really cover it for me. And I thought about covenant. Covenant. Then I got to Genesis 9, where God makes a covenant with Noah that will never flood the earth again, but the covenant's also with the livestock. Then I went to worship. Only us. Then I went to Revelation 5 and the, the fish were having a great time worshipping Jesus. Read it. Oh man, what is it? I've settled on this. Family. If you look at the act of God creating people in his image, God is reproducing after his own likeness. I said to Davina today, he was really doing, in a, you know, and I'll say it with reverence, but doing a similar thing in one sense, obviously different, but in one sense, what me and Davina did with Daisy Levi and Melody, we reproduced after our kind. That's what the Bible says there. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. It's remarkable. It's shocking. And in fact, when people come up with these kind of ideas about, you know, we are divine and all the rest of it, and good Solid Christians go, no! And I understand why we say no. We should say no. And yet there are these things in the Bible about, about partaking of the divine nature. You think, oh, hold on a minute. And it's actually, we've got to allow the power of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God that we, are, that we, that we have the capacity to be children, sons, adopted in the family of God. It's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. We relate to God in terms of family. Likeness. We carry the family likeness. Then the second thing, which is equally as penetrating, I think, in a, in a different kind of way, is this whole idea of let us make man in our image. This plural. God isn't talking to the angels. Nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that we're made in the image of angels. It's God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having a conversation with himself. So in the earliest days of the Bible, there's hints at the Trinity. There's this community. But then he does that. But actually we realise that he himself creates a community. Male and female. And so in all of our trying to explain and define the Trinity, and it's impossible and you never can, but you know, you hear all kinds of things. It's a bit like water, ice and steam. Or it's a bit like a, you know, I don't know, clover, three leaves, and all that sort of stuff. You can never explain it or define it, but probably the closest thing is this. Davina, can you just join me for a second? This is probably the closest, the closest thing you can do, even though it's not sufficient, but it's as close as you're going to get. 
God the Father is by himself fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Spirit fully God. But only the Father, Son and the Spirit, in a sense, completely represent God. I am fully mankind as a man. Divina is fully mankind as a woman. But only as man and woman can we represent complete mankind. So there is a plurality as humans within the unity. You did a great job, thank you. <laughs> She's made, made, made for that sort of thing. It's, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah. And so the male-female thing is huge. It is absolutely massive. Which we will look at as the thing develops throughout today's message. There's an us about being human. There's a loving community. Just as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is a loving community, God created a loving community of a man and a woman who, before the sin, before the disobedience, it was all perfect and it was wonderful and it was beautiful. So we reflect the image of God in that sense. And then thirdly, I would describe it as benevolent authority. That means good or kind authority. God says, let us make man in our image that he, that he may have dominion, he may rule over creation. Very explicit. That's, that is another way in which we demonstrate the image of God. It's towards creation. We were originally made to subdue it and to bring it into order and to cultivate it, to do well with it. The creatures, the fish, the birds, the inanimate planet itself. That's the third sense in which we represent and carry the image of God. This is who you are. Amazing, isn't it? This is, who, this is what you were made for. This is your destiny. To be a son to be a child, to be in the family of God. To walk in loving harmony with other people and particularly to manifest the fullness in some sense of the image of God to your relationships with those of the opposite sex. And to demonstrate God's kind and generous rule over creation. Wow! Just get the glory of that before we go any further. It's a beautiful and it's a wonderful thing. that our understanding of creation is that we're really clear as believers that creation is not divine, so it's not to be worshipped. But it's not just utilitarian. I'll use it for our own good and don't care about it. No, it's sacred. It's sacred. And our treatment of it is part of our expression of the nature of God who we are told delights in the works of his hands. So it should be a similar thing for us. As you can expect, the fall, Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience led to the ruining of all three aspects. If we look at Genesis 3, verse um, 8 to 10, after they've sinned, they've recently just sinned, realised they're naked, they're panicking, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now hold on for just a minute. I came in from, I was, I was out walking this morning. I came in, I opened the front door. Uh, Melody, my daughter, heard the front door go. She said, Daddy, yay! Ran down and says, came up, give me a cuddle and a kiss. That's how it should be with us and God. This is what it became. It's what sin does. Once you've fallen, you don't really want to be near God because you're covered in fear and shame, rooted in guilt, rooted in sin. 
And so our, our instinct becomes to run away from God. So we see straight away there, that element of the image is being ruined, it's being marred, it's being distorted by sin. Then, horizontally, we find there's trouble. In the next verses, Genesis 3, 12 and 16. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And he blamed. Straight away, there's tension now through blame. It's her fault. And then part of the curse that God brings on the woman, that he brings judgment to the serpent, the man and the woman, but he says this to the woman, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That word desire is a negative word, it means you're going to be after his position, after his role, you're going to, there's going to be something in you that wants to undermine and usurp him, uh, and his response to that will be dominion and oppression, so as we see all around the world today, this kind of thing, it's all a result, of the fall, the sin. You see? So horizontally, this love, this demonstration of God's uh, image through male and female in harmony, it's breaking down. And then we see the third thing in verses 17 to 19. God speaks to the man, Adam, you shall not make... Oh, I haven't put it in there again. Sorry, Rachel. Go back to the other one. It, it, yeah, it was, it was me. Okay. He says to the man... Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so the ground, it's the, the creation itself that is supposed to be over and there's supposed to be fruitfulness and definitely work and labour, but it's fruitful, it's not toilsome, it's not frustrating, it's not painful. Now it will be. Even the relationship between man and creation on every level will be toilsome and frustrating and painful. So through the fall, all of those elements of reflection, the image of God are ruined, are marred, are distorted. That is what we have at the fall. And so God in his wisdom creates for himself a nation called Israel, starting with Abraham, and then Abraham and Sarah, and they have Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God has for himself a nation uh, and it's his desire that this nation should be like his son. He adopts this nation. He's, the way he relates to this nation and talks to this nation, it is in the language of father to son. We'll look at some of those scriptures in just a moment. And one of the things he says to them is, it's very interesting, listen to this scripture here, Exodus 20, he says, part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, there's that word again, or any likeness, there's the other word again from Genesis 1, when God said, let's make man in our image, in our likeness. He says, I don't want you to do that, Anything in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that's, in, or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So interestingly, God has very strong feelings about image and likeness. He says, I'm going to make you in my image and likeness. Don't you go doing that sort of thing now. Don't you go making that kind of stuff. You don't, nothing that you make to represent me will adequately represent me, so don't do it. In fact, as soon as you make something to represent me, you've turned away from me. Even if you say that thing you've made is representing me, you've still turned away from me. That is not me. So there was one time where they made some, a golden calf and, and they said, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And so in a sense, it was kind of this strange thing. It was an idol, but they were kind of somehow trying to syncretize. And I said, no, he's kind of like the Lord. And God says, it's just idolatry. And it's, it's so uh, angered the heart of God that Moses ground the statue into powder 
uh, and threw it in the river and made them lick it up. I mean, it was, you know, strong feelings. God says, don't, don't do that stuff. You're not to do that. The image and likeness thing is to do with you representing me on the earth. That's what that's about. But we see Israel, as we're seeing as a repetitive theme now, they fall, they fail. Firstly, in regards to their family position, their position as sons, which God was looking to restore. Hosea 11, it says this, God speaks, when Israel was, Israel was a child, I loved him. Listen to this language. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. Amazing language. But they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and I bent down to them and fed them. I mean, it's just so tender. You see the heart of God towards his people, Israel. My son taught them how to walk, bend down and feed. And what does he say? He says this, the more they were called, the more they went away. They could not stop going after other idols and images. They're wayward sons. You're a son, but you're a wayward son. You're a son similar to Adam, but a bit different. You're, you're, in your own way, you're running away from me. You're turning to other gods. We see this image broken. It's not working as it should do. And then you see, we see in their desire, a strange thing, to make these idols and go after the Baals and these other things. Something very disturbing happened. And it's this. The dynamic of imaging works like this. If I made an image of God and my role is to reflect that image, what I need to do is be in the presence of God, to behold his glory. Then I can shine out that glory. Yeah, You might want to call it mirroring. I'm in his presence, as a result of that I can shine out his, 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 what he's like. You see it very vividly in Moses' life, he would spend long times up in the mountain in the presence of God, and when he came down his face literally glowed, and people were freaked out. And so in the end, he had to wear a veil because it was too much. He lived with this glow from being in the presence of God. It's a wonderful picture of how it works. But you see, the Israelites, they would make these images, right? Now, follow me on this. They would make these images, but these images weren't really anything. They were just the work of their hands and the ideas of their own imagination. And so actually what they would do is they would make these things in their image. And so these gods and these other religions, they would often require these terrible things as part of their worship. Horrific things. Child sacrifice. You think, what, 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 how, what? but this thing isn't even real. It's a statue. How can that require that? Oh, well, it was made by malicious people and it reflects their image. Very often it would involve cult prostitution and just all kinds of sexual perversion and vice as part of the worship. You think, well how could that statue require that? It's not anything. What's going on there? It was made by fallen, perverted people. And it reflects that image. And so even we see, even take that, that case in point with the, the, some of the vile stuff that, that went on in these, in these worship rites, worshiping these gods of fertility in quotes, so-called. You think, well, what is going on there? It's the total distortion, often of the male and female relationship, the wonders of uh, marital sex and all of that. You know, what's going on there is the image is being broken down, horizontally as well. And also, we see the breaking down of mankind's responsibility over creation, because they're worshipping created things. So where they were supposed to worship God and then 
exercise authority over creation. Now they turned away from God and, and making things, created things. And they, I mean, God mocks it in the prophets. He mocks it mercilessly. These people who fashion the thing and they nail it in place so it won't fall over. And then they say, you made me. I worship you. What? You just made it. It's, not, it's crazy. What is, it's a total reversal of God's order. You worship him. Creation and created things. And in the end, this land, this promised land that they were supposed to subdue and demonstrate the authority of God over, vomits them out. In the words of the prophets. Can't even stand them. And so we see this precious son, Adam, mankind, wayward. We see Israel, God's son, my son whom I brought out of Egypt, wayward. Time for one more son. You know who I'm talking about. Enter Jesus. Now, yeah, we, we, need, to, we need to understand, not, not be complacent here. Because Jesus comes, firstly he comes as the perfect image of God. It's very, very important. If we look at John chapter 14, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he's the exact representation of the nature of God. Jesus comes as the perfect image of God on the one hand, but also, very importantly, he comes as the perfect image of man. He's described as the... the, uh, the, I always get the two mixed up. Second, ma- the last Adam and the second man. I think that's the right way around. These two phrases. It's basically saying this. This one is Adam again. This, as as the original Adam, through his fall, brought the whole of humanity with him. This Adam, through his obedience, is going to bring a whole new authority behind him that rests entirely on his obedience and his righteousness. And he comes as a second man. The word Adam means man. He's the perfect man. He represents what it is to be human. You want to know what, it's, what, what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what humanity is really like? Look at Jesus. You see, it's a fight. What, are we saying humans are God? No. But they are made in the image of God. So you want to see God? Look at Jesus. You want to see humanity? Look at Jesus. It's very, very stunning. It's very, very beautiful. And so Jesus becomes the perfect mediator between God and man. Why? Because he can represent both parties. He understands God. He is God. He understands man. He is man. He's the perfect mirror. Perfectly beholding the Father and shining out the Father's glory into the earth. And I want to show you the way that Jesus walks in the perfection of the image of God in these three ways so you can see the wonders of Jesus and how he does it. The first is whole idea of family, this whole idea of adoption to be being the son. We'll start with Luke 3.21. Now when all the people were baptised and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I love that. I'm well pleased with you. So loving it. It's like, you imagine Jesus just basking under that. Wow, what a start to your ministry. Oh, I haven't healed anyone. You haven't done anything. But I'm just under the love and the pleasure of my Father. And then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness straight away. 
And if we go on to the next scripture here, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So he's luring him away, like you have to lure away Adam and Eve, lure away Israel. He said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me and I'll give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. End of story. Jesus just quotes scripture. It's the word of God. And it's just this incredible moment of just devotion to God. It's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. The devil's like, but you're destined for glory. You're destined for all the kingdoms of the earth. You, have, you, can, you can bypass the cross. I'll give you the, the easy way. All you've got to do is just bow down. Just once. Come on. Just once. Just quickly. It's, your, it's all yours. It is written. This is not a wayward son. This is a perfectly obedient son. And then look at him in Luke 22 in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, just before the cross. He withdrew from there about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. He's yielding to the Father's will now. He's in pain, agony, distress of soul. He's about to be crucified. It's horrific. And he yields to the Father's will. Not a wayward son, an obedient son. Just as Adam messed up in the garden, Jesus comes good in the garden. Just as Adam messed up in the wilderness, and Israel messed up in the wilderness, Jesus comes good in the wilderness. He's redeeming, he's redeeming sonship. He's redeeming, oh, it's glorious. You think, oh, Jesus, you are incredible. And then the male-female thing is so beautiful in Christ. So wonderful in Christ. The way he is with women is shocking for the day. Absolutely shocking. He approaches a, a, a Samaritan woman. The Jews didn't speak to Samaritans and men in public just speaking to a random woman. He didn't do that kind of thing. He spoke to her. He ministered to her. He restored her soul. His disciples saw him out and they thought, well, she's speaking to a woman. But none of them dead say anything to him. He relates in a totally different way. He's friends with Mary and Martha, these sisters. He, he comes alongside Mary Magdalene, who's, who's lived a, a lifestyle of shame and kind of sexual depravity and all these things. And he ministers to her, cleanses her, forgives her. She becomes, she becomes one of his closest and dearest friends and disciples. It's an extraordinary thing with Jesus. He, re- he is redeeming the whole thing. He will not yield to cultural pressures. This is how you do it. No, no, he's about restoring the image of God in man. That's what he's about. And he's, he is determined, determined that he will do it. And then his authority over creation. This is quite provoking. Think about the walking on the water. Think about multiplying the food, the meal. You know, a few fish and bread feeds 5,000. Think about turning water into wine. Historically, Theologians have seen it as a sign of divinity. He must be God. Yeah. But I think it's also a sign of humanity. Listen to Tom Wright. He's not stupid. He's one clever theologian. He says this. One can make a case for seeing the powerful works of Jesus as evidence of his true humanity, since it is genuine humans who are in charge of God's world. Wow. Wow. And actually, the way Jesus talks about you'll do greater works than I did and the similar things that I've done if you just believe, it seems to hint at it's more along the line of restored humanity than it is you have to be God to do that kind of stuff. Now it's delicate and you obviously know there's a tightrope and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, you've got to be provoked by this. It's, I think it's as, it's as much a demonstration of true humanity. 
as it is divinity. And so in Jesus' total humanity, he redeemed humanity. He weeps, he laughs, he sings, he eats, he sleeps, he bleeds, he dies. He dies. And frighteningly, we're told in Isaiah 52, predicting Jesus' crucifixion, interesting that he was marred beyond human likeness. Ah. The perfect image of humanity at the cross is marred beyond you think you wouldn't even recognize what is that is it human he was so ruined so desperately ruined as he hung there he embraces our ruin in that moment see this is the wonder of Jesus he comes and he lives out this blessed perfect full complete human life and everyone goes wow he's amazing the only people that didn't like him were the religious hypocrites because Jesus' life exposed their false foundation of self-righteousness. Everyone else loved him. He was clearly amazing. He was compassionate. He was truthful. He was gracious. He was generous. He was fun. He was just glorious in every way. Blessed, walking under the favour of God. When he prayed for the sick, they all got healed. Just amazing. And then suddenly he becomes something, which is, is that even human? What is that? He's ruined beyond even human likeness. Why? Because then he embraces our ruin. Then he enters into the darkest depths of our shutting down, our breaking down, our fragmented humanity that we experience day in, day out. The curse that we are born under, the Adam, the the cloud of Adam, if you like, he enters into it fully. He enters into the disaster of who you and I are in Adam. Embraces it, the darkness of it, the fear, the horror of it. Not my will, but yours be done. He goes right in and becomes sin. The righteousness of God becomes sin. You think, what is going on here? The, the tragedy of broken humanity, of twisted, selfish, godless, rebellious, blasphemous, proud humanity, the horror of it, he fully embraces and becomes. He faces Adam's sentence, Israel's sentence, your sentence, and my sentence. He takes it on as a substitution. He takes my place. He takes your place. And it's shocking. It's shocking. But at the end, he says, it is finished. And what that means is it is done, it is completed. I have done it. The judgment that hangs over us like a sword ready to drop has been faced, has been paid for, has been dealt with, has been satisfied in him at the cross. I hope that nose blowing was an amen. It's the closest we get to an amen. Amen. Staggering. And then at his resurrection three days later, he, he brings humanity out of the ashes with him and starts a new, glorious humanity, which takes us into the new creation. At the resurrection of Christ, the new age dawns. It's not fully consummated yet at his return, when Jesus comes again, the new age will fully expel and blast out everything old. When God says, I'll make everything new. But the new age begins at the resurrection. So we live in the overlap of the ages. You should be excited about that. <laughs> yeah, we're told the prophets and all the others in the Old Testament were looking forward to this time, to this moment, with the day of the Lord. They saw it as one event because the prophets, they 
clever people call it prophetic telescoping. When you're a prophet, you see it all in one thing, but actually we realize the day of the Lord is two events, the first appearance of Christ at his birth, and the second appearance when he returns. But we live in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come, and the day of the Lord is coming. We live in the overlap of the ages. The Bible says we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's very, very exciting. And so what does it look like now to live in the overlap of the ages in Christ? Those of us that are in Christ, those of you who aren't, when you give your life to Christ, then it will apply to you. So give your life to Christ. What does it look like to have your image restored, the image of God restored in the new creation? Well, the family thing is sorted. Hallelujah. Romans 8, 28-29 says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this wonder of wonders that is Jesus Christ, he is so humble, he's willing to be part of a gang. I mean, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, do you know what, I want to be the only child. Because, actually, I did everything, and you lot all were totally useless. Can we, like, be in a different category? Because uh, you lot really taken away from the glory. <laughs> that would be my approach, because I'm a sinner. See? So Jesus is like, do you know what? I've done it all. Come and join the party. You're going to be totally transformed into my image. You're going to be transformed bit by bit in this age. But from that moment where you're either when you die, or when I return, at either moment, whether you're still alive when I return, or you've died already, you are going to be transformed in a moment. When you see me face to face, you'll be fully in my likeness, and we're going to share this glory together. So you think, oh my goodness. But it begins now. It begins in this day now. You know, we have the spirit of adoption living in us as a down payment who, who testifies, yes, you are sons. And it's like a, a guarantee, a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. You're going to have the full experience when Jesus returns. So the family thing, sorted. You're in. If you're in Christ, you're in. If you're in the son, you are a son. Wonderful, men and women. And then what about the whole male-female thing in the new creation. Well, let me just point something out to you. The first people Jesus appears to at his resurrection are women. That is a big deal. Because in those times, a woman's testimony would not even be valued in a court of law. Because they, you know, society had been so twisted and bent out of shape by the fall and by sin. That is how women were viewed. Jesus appears to the women, first of all, and announces it's a new day. I'm alive. And he goes to these wonderful, devoted, weeping women up at the crack of dawn to be at his tomb. Not they didn't know. What are they going to do? How are they going to move to stone? Is anyone going to move to stone? But there they are with their spices ready to just love him. And he's alive. He's alive. And he appears to these women first of all. And the Bible makes it very, very clear. In Christ there's no male or female. There's no, there's, no, there's no division. There's no, no wall between male and female. There is nothing that can keep us from fellowship. These things that, that can keep a male and female from fellowship. Not in Christ. Not in Christ. The whole thing gets renewed, redeemed. We'll look at that in the application in just a moment. We'll look at it in the application. It's, God, God is looking to restore the glory. That men and women together, as men act like men and women act like women, together they represent the wonder, the splendour of who God is, as they do it in harmony, loving, honouring, preferring one another. It's beautiful. And then benevolent authority. What, is, what does that look, you know, creation, how does that work now? Well, Romans 8, next one. 
I consider the, pre- the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us to us. For the creation waits, listen, uh, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We're going to just start there for a minute, right? The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of those who are in Christ. Jumping up, come on, when? We want to know, who are they? Because we're going we're to rule the new creation. We're going to subdue it in the new age where there's no corruption and no death and we're going to look after it well. And the creation's really excited. <laughs> For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain itself the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So once, as, as the sons of God are revealed in their glory, the creation in that moment will be re- released into that same freedom under, under, the, under the glory of the children of God. It's amazing. We know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jesus talks about things like earthquakes and the like as labour pains. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons or redemption of our bodies. The whole thing is coming together. Isn't that wonderful? The whole thing holds together. So what are we to do with this wonderful news? How, should we, how do we apply this stuff? Firstly, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, you are adopted, you are loved, you are cherished by God, welcome, accepted 24-7 on the grounds of Jesus' perfect righteousness. Do you understand that? If any of you here who call yourself Christians are more confident in the presence of God when you've had a good day or a good week, you don't understand it. If any of you here are less confident in the presence of God when you've had a bad day or a bad week, you don't understand it. Your acceptance into the presence of God, your justification, your legal declaration that you are righteous is based entirely on the fact that you are holding on to Jesus who is perfectly righteous and you're hidden in him. Wonderful. Grace. It's what grace is. It's very, very shocking. So you must not run from God if you call yourself a Christian. You run to him. It's those who do not... It's, you know, Adam and Eve, when they realised they were naked, they put the fig leaves on, sold themselves some fig leaves, right? And they're like, great, we're sorted now. Yeah. Then God came. And what do they do? They hide in the bush. See, because you can put your fig leaves together and try and make yourself righteous, try and make yourself good enough, and you can even feel like, we're doing okay, we're looking pretty good here, but when the presence of God comes, it is exposed as nonsense. It doesn't work. The only thing that can fit you out for the presence of God is perf- perfect righteousness. And Jesus offers you his freely. Whoa! Beautiful. So I want to call you, if you call yourself a Christian, learn to trust, obey, be satisfied in him, and take on the family way. Imitate. You're a son. Look like your father. Secondly, regarding your relationships with those of the opposite sex, you are to let the Lord renew your mind regarding the way you think about those of the opposite sex. You are to recognise your incompletion in reflecting his image without the opposite sex. It's really important. You need to commit to learning about the opposite sex from scripture and not from popular culture, which is in darkness. 
You need to resolve before God that you will treat the opposite sex lovingly, not selfishly, not fearfully, not simply sexually, not bitterly, not suspiciously. But that you get your mind renewed. Some of you would have picked up all kinds of crazy stuff growing up, crazy thoughts and ideas, little things people have said. Maybe your dad had a funny attitude towards women or your women, your mum towards men or whatever, and you've taken this thing on and it's, listen, you are new now. You are brand new. The old is gone. And the Bible says that the blood of Jesus will redeem you from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And a lot of that's to do with the way you think. God wants to really, really help us in this area. Teach us wisdom. Teach us how to really honour and prefer. Not to, not to do the thing that men and women often do in the world in times of, you know, the sort of, it's, it's, it's boys are better than girls in the playground, but just 20 years older. It's the same old nonsense. No, but that we totally, you know, guys, we need to be praying for that woman's day. They have an amazing time. That they grow strong in God. That, that God meets them and touches them and that they become all that God's called them to be. Yeah, you know, women, I know that you know, many of you pray for the men's day. This, this is what we've got to be doing. Why? Because we're in this together. This is about the glory of God. This is about God being seen in his creation. This is massive. And then finally, regarding our relationship with creation, we are to delight in creation. We are to look after creation. We are to care about it. We are to steward it well. At the same time, we are not to worship it or put our hope in it. Listen to what Peter says in his letter about creation. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're not to put our hope, in an ultimate sense, in creation. It's foolish. It's naive. Okay? This, this age will end with a dissolving of some kind. Whether it means that there will be an actual brand new, actual heavens and new earth, or it will just be renewed after having passed through some kind of process like this, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that we are not to put our hope in the present form of things. That's naive as believers to do that or to worship it. But we are definitely to look after it, steward it well and delight in it because God delights in the works of his hands. So there we are. We've made it. It's not even five o'clock yet. I want to help us just respond now for just a moment. Just to get our heads around. Okay, what, what do we do now? Just a couple more scriptures. Right, just a couple more just to help us. In the overlap of the ages that we live in, how do we become more like Jesus? 2 Corinthians 3. And we all, with unbowed face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, if you could, for a moment, just be self-controlled and not read the second one, just for a moment, because it, it won't help. But I should have put on separate slides. But that word beholding is a really interesting word there. Because some, some of you, if you've got NIV, it will probably say reflecting. ESV, NASB says beholding. Behold and reflect are different things. To behold is to look at something, to reflect is, to, is, to, is, is different. I don't know how to describe it, it's to reflect. Why, why, what's the confusion? Well, the word means, it means both. It's mirroring. That's, that's the dynamic that it's getting at. So, 
And we all, with unveiled face, someone like Moses, you know, it's not like that. We can just come into the presence of God through Christ. We mirror the glory of the Lord. So we behold and then we reflect. Okay? And we're being transformed into the same image, into the image of the Lord, from one degree of glory to another. So our process of becoming more and more like Jesus involves this. Investing in time with Jesus. I cannot... It's as simple as that, but man alive. Am I frequently surprised and amazed with the amount of professing Christians who do not invest in time with Jesus? And I'm talking more than about snatching a prayer on a train. Yeah. I'm being serious about this. Just imagine for a moment, if this is the most important relationship in your life, you have to give time to it. Imagine if I just, yeah, yeah, I've been with, yeah, sure, I know me and Davina, yeah, we, we, we catch up every now and then, we catch up. I, I saw her in the kitchen the other day. Yeah. She, was, she seemed fine. <laughs> How's your marriage? Yes. It's good, yeah, I think I texted her the other day. You know, hold on. There has to be some face-to-face. There has to be some moments where, they're actually, where we're actually focused on one another. And the whole time would be crazy. But there has to be, you know, also text and in the kitchen is fine. But there has to be likewise. Likewise. And you don't put it in, it won't happen. You don't build it in, it won't happen. Just won't. Life will take over. But you've got to behold him. There's something leisurely about that. I'm just looking at Jesus. There's something leisurely... You can't, you can't be doing a hundred and other things as well. So, no, I'm, I'm looking at Jesus. He's got my attention. Now, God is good. His commands aren't burdensome. He understands how many hours you've got to work. He understands all of those things. He understands you're sitting there thinking, it's right for you. You work for the church. He understands all of that. Right? As I know, right? He understands all of that. He will come alongside you and help you to be wise. And it, it, he, He'll give you wisdom. He's not expecting you to spend all day praying. Okay? But give him some time. Why? Because you want to be changed one degree of glory into another, don't you? Oh, there you go. You've got to look at him. There it is. The next scripture, that was wonderful. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we'll see him as he is. So in the moment where you see him perfectly, in that moment you are transformed perfectly into his image. Because the same dynamic is at work. Yeah? You see, you become. But in this age, it's like through a, a mirror. Well, in those, it says it's like through a glass darkly. Right? In those days, mirrors weren't like mirrors are now. So the illustration doesn't work. In those days, mirrors, you kind of, oh, I think my hair looks okay. It wasn't that the quality was different. Okay? So the way we see Jesus now is like that. No matter what revival you go to, no matter what amazing church you visit, it's through a glass darkly. Okay? You've got to understand that. That's just this age. But in the next stage, you'll see him face to face and in that moment, you will be like him. And you'll be given a glorified body that can cope with seeing him face to face. Wow. Which takes us on to our, our usual finale, Revelation 22. <laughs> the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be...
will be on their foreheads. That is the climax of creation. You see his face. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's where this thing is going. Can I have to stand for your feet, to your feet for just a moment? I want us to meditate on one last short scripture together while the music plays for a moment. I want us to just meditate on this. Number 6, verses 24 to 26. You'll recognise the themes we've been looking at through this verse. It's a beautiful, we call it the Aaronic Blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I'm going to read that again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's talking about the favour of God. In Christ, we are under the favour of God. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 